Amen. Would you take a seat? Well, it's my great pleasure now. Thank you. Thank you, team. That was lovely. It's my great pleasure now to introduce uh, our speaker for this morning. Um, Come on up, John. Now, last time uh, you you saw John, uh, if you were here back earlier in the year, uh, John was a guest uh, who came and shared with us about the relationship between faith and science. Uh, Who was here for that that morning? Yeah, it was a wonderful morning and a a wonderful presentation. But um, in the time since, we are really blessed um, to be able to say that John and uh, Mel and Matt uh, and their family have uh, made New Vine their, their church family and home. And we are so uh, glad to have you and Mel, uh, Matt, and uh, the rest of your family as part of our church family. Yeah, would you please put your hands together for John? There we go. Uh, so, John, welcome. And thank you for uh, preparing uh, all that you have to share with us this morning. We, we look forward to hearing it. Shall I pray f- for us before I hand over? Okay. Well, let's pray. Holy Spirit, we, we welcome you here this morning. We know you're here. Uh, you were here before we were. Um, but we take a moment now to focus uh, our attention uh, on hearing from you this morning. And we pray that uh, the words that, um, that John speak will, will ring home, will resonate uh, in those deep parts of us, and that we will hear you speak to us this morning, Lord God, by your Holy Spirit. And may we be encouraged, may we be challenged, may we be drawn into a closer relationship with you. And Lord, uh, uh, for anyone here this morning, if that's you and and you feel that's all a bit strange and you're not sure um, where you're at with faith and all of that, uh, Lord, I pray that um, uh, you'd also speak in a way um, that is real and relevant uh, to us all. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks so much, John. Thanks for praying, DJ. My, my family is always keen to remind me that I can't multitask. And if I'm having to flip uh, my paper notes with one hand, work the slides on the other, and remember to hold the microphone at the right height, I'm going to need divine help uh, to do that. So as, as DJ said, this is week two of a 10-week series called So Loved, in which we're looking at the whole narrative of the Bible from Genesis right through to Revelation as, as the revelation of God's love. And so it makes sense to start at the beginning with Genesis and to understand creation as an expression of God's love. Um, For God so loved, he created. But part of the problem in doing that is that we are so familiar with the story of Genesis that we fail to see how profound it actually is. So we've seen it, we've heard it since Sunday school, you know, God creates the heavens and the earth, the land and the sea, the plants and the animals. He puts Adam and Eve in the garden and everything's perfect until they eat the fruit and then everything goes horribly wrong. Um, and, and we are so familiar with that story, it's hard to see it in a new light and understand how truly profound it is. So what I want to try and do in the next half hour is to see the creation story with fresh eyes Given that those fresh eyes, understanding what that means for creation, understanding that we fell, when we fell, creation also fell, but that God doesn't turn his back on creation, just like he doesn't turn his back on us. He sustains and redeems creation. And so, after doing that bit of theology, what is our response uh, to that? So, um, stick with me, and uh, we'll work our way uh, through this. So... 
how to see creation in a fresh light. I want to invite you to look at creation through the eyes of the disciple John writing his uh, gospel. So imagine that you are John. It's about 90 AD. You are the last of the surviving disciples. You're the last link uh, between the disciples and Jesus. So John is about to write the story of his friend and savior. Um, he's been following Jesus since he was probably in his mid-twenties. So for 60 years, um, you, John, has followed Jesus. He's been teaching, praying, uh, thinking, meditating on this truth, this deep truth. And at this time, the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, have been circulating in the churches and being read out in the synagogues and the home churches for about 30 years. And Paul's letters are, have been circulating for about the same time. So John is probably thinking, what else is there that I want to say about my friend Jesus that hasn't been already said or that hasn't been emphasized? And so his gospel has about 90% of it is unique. You don't hear it anywhere else in the other uh, gospels. Because you can imagine he's probably trying to fill in the gaps. What have other people not said about this person that he has spent his life uh, following? And so when, when John starts his story of Jesus, he starts with these words, in the beginning. So right away he is uh, echoing those iconic three words that start out Genesis, in the beginning. So right away he's saying the story of Jesus starts with the story of creation. And he goes on to say, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And I don't know if you remember the first time you might have read that. It's kind of a funny word to choose. In the beginning was the Word. And so I suppose you can take it at face value. And if you remember the Genesis account, God simply speaks and creation is made out of nothingness. And that in itself is quite radical, because if you think about the creation stories of the other civilizations that were around uh, at the time of the Israelites, or some of the other religions, um, those stories are actually quite violent and bloodthirsty. Um, so if we look at, for example, the Babyl Babylonian creation myth, that was one of the biggest empires at the time that the Israelites were there, their creation story says that the god Tiamat, no, sorry, the god Marduk, um, blows, blows wind into the mouth of the creation monster, uh, Tiamat, so that her belly blows up. He slashes her belly open, splits her in two, and uses half of her body to create the heavens and half to create the earth, which is pretty violent stuff. So it's pretty radical that the Hebrew god simply has to speak and everything is created uh, out, of, out of that, out of order. Um, but more than that, John is saying something more here. The particular Greek word is logos. And that was specifically used by theologians and philosophers to refer to the uh, principle of reason, the prime mover, the purpose and animating force behind everything. So the story of Jesus that John starts to say is linked to this prime moving force behind everything that is in the world. And what is that force? Well, it's there implicitly in all of his gospel, 
but he finally comes out and says it explicitly in his first letter. He, he writes, God is love. So the story of Jesus starts with the story of creation, and its prime moving force behind everything, including creation, is, is love. So let me put that another way. What John is, is doing here in starting his gospel in a completely different way from the other three gospels is that the story of Jesus is the story of the revelation of God's love and the first expression of that love is creation. Does that make sense? And so, although the theologians had often talked of, of creation as creation ex nihilo, creation out of nothing, being a testament of God's power, John is saying here it is also a testament of God's love. Creation is an expression of God's love. And so, if that's true, what does that mean for our understanding of creation? And the first thing I think is that creation is a gift. So if you remember in the Genesis story, God says, um, let us create man in our image. So already at the beginning, there is a community. God is a trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And to understand the relationship between the trinity is pretty heavy theological stuff. And so the medieval theologians had to invent a word to describe this relationship between the Trinity. And they called it perichoresis. Um, now, I, I did some research, and some of those definitions of perichoresis are pretty dense. But the one that really resonated with me points out the fact that choresis is the same root word from which we get choreography. So it refers to dance. So it's kind of this dance of love between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It's this giving and receiving of, of love between the three uh, members of the Trinity that is already there before creation starts. And creation springs out of that love that is being given and received between the members of the Trinity. And so we read in Colossians 1, the Son is the image of the invisible God, for in him all things were created, all things have been created through him and for him. And that little preposition, for, I had never really thought about. But the idea of creation being a gift from the Father to the Son as an expression of that love that is continually circulating between the members of the Trinity, I thought was a really interesting uh, point. And so, if out of this flow of love between the Father and the Son, the Father is giving creation almost as a gift to the Son. By extension, it is also a gift to us. Because we read in Romans 8, we are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. And Jesus is the firstborn of many brothers and sisters. So this gift of love from the Father to the Son of creation is also a gift to us. Is that making sense? So that's the first um, implication of understanding creation out of love. It is a gift from the Father to the Son, and so it is also a gift uh, to us. The second thing um, that it, it indicates is that creation has intrinsic value. So I think we're used to the idea that humans have intrinsic value because we are made in the image of God. So it's not whether somebody is useful or what they contribute to society that gives them value, but simply every human being has value because they are made in the image of God. 
I think there's a parallel idea here in creation. So even before creation is useful to man, even before we're even on the scene, those first six days when God is creating um, creation, he stands back and calls it good, which in Hebrew is the word tov. And so long before creation is useful to us because it gives us water to drink or food to eat or materials to build with or medicines to heal, um, God stands back and looks at it and says it is good. Um, so in, just in the same way humans have intrinsic value because they are made in the image of God, creation has value because it is made by God as well. And not only that, creation also reflects the character uh, of God. Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. Romans 1 says, since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. So there again, the, the idea is that creation speaks to us uh, of God's character. And in the same, you could imagine, uh, some theologians have said that nature is the first book of God and the Bible is his second book. Uh, in essence. So if we understand creation as an expression of God's love, it means that creation is a gift to us, but also that creation has intrinsic value because it's made by God and it speaks to us of God's character. So with that understanding, as we said, um, things don't stay pretty. Uh, when we fall, creation falls as well. If you remember in Genesis 1, it says, uh, let us make mankind in our image so that they may rule. And it looks like when God allows man uh, the mandate to rule over creation, creation's fate becomes linked to our own. And so when we fall, creation falls as well. This is what it tells us in Romans 8. Against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse. But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. And so in the same way that we are affected by death and decay in original sin, so does creation become subject uh, to that. And that can take two forms. One, it can be the essential fallenness of creation in the same way we're fallen. But it also is um, what Douglas and Jonathan Moo uh, have called, they're kind of environmental theologians. Uh, they've called this ecological sin. Creation is also subject to our sinful choices. When, when we choose um, things out of our disordered desires uh, and we use and abuse the environment, it also feels um, the weight of that sin. And they make the point that there's lots of examples in the Old Testament where um, there is famine or pestilence or plague as a result of man's, uh, man's sinful choices. Just to give you an example, in 2 Chronicles 7, um, this prophecy um, from God that says, When I shut the heavens so that there is no rain, or command locusts to devour the land, or send a plague among my people, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and... This is the bit that I want to focus on. I will forgive their sin and heal their land. And you see there the connection between human sin and the state of the environment and how the two go hand in hand. So um, when we fell, creation fell, 
and, and there's an intrinsic fallenness in nature, but it also is fallen because it is subject and feels the weight of our sinful desires, how we use and abuse it. Now, in the face of that, God doesn't turn his back on nature. In the same way he doesn't turn his back on us or abandon us, in our sin he doesn't turn his back on nature as well. <clears throat> and um, this is a pretty critical thing. Um, God continues to sustain creation. And I think this is an idea worth spending some time on because I think the Western church has been very influenced by um, the Enlightenment and probably some Victorian scientists as well. So when um, Charles Darwin came up with his uh, theory of evolution, a number of scientists at the time, who's, who were men of faith as well, tried to figure out how can I reconcile the theory of evolution with the fact that God created uh, the world. And the idea they came up with was of a, a watchmaker God. It was like the idea that a watchmaker creates the watch, winds it up, and lets it go on its own. The idea was that God created the world, kind of wound it up, and then stepped back, and it's the laws of physics, the laws of chemistry, the laws of biology, and the laws of evolution that kind of determine how the world runs. Now that leads to a very passive idea of the relationship of God and the world. And that's not scriptural at all. Scripture gives us a very different picture of a God who is active and continues to work in creation. So Colossians 1 says, Jesus is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That creation continues to exist because God is actively pulling it together. Hebrews 1 says, the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. So scripture tells us God isn't sitting back and letting the world kind of run on its own like a clock that's been wound up. He's continuing to be active. And if some of you may recognize this picture as the Large Hadron Collider, um, which is used in particle physics, modern particle physics. And I want to digress into two, um, two phenomena in modern particle physics um, that give supporting evidence to this idea that God continues to be active in the world. Now, I have to apologize ahead of time if there are any physicists here or physicists listening online. I may mangle some of these details, um, but I think the idea uh, will be uh, correct. The first thing I want to talk about is something called quantum entanglement. So the, physicists have actually done these experiments. If you take a particle and you break it up so that you have two electrons as part of the things that, particles that fly out, those two particles will fly off in different directions. And if you exert a magnetic field and flip the spin of one electron, the other electron will also flip its spin, even if it's hundreds of, hundreds of kilometers uh, away. And they've done this experimentally. And they have measured the fact that that happens instantaneously, um, basically faster than the speed of light. And modern physics has no explanation. There is no force that is known that can do that and move faster than the speed of light. But if you look at the mathematics that describes this, the mathematics suggests that there is one or more extra dimensions that are inaccessible to our world where there are forces that must be holding uh, these two electrons together and doing that. 
And not only that, but that one or more extra dimensions are separated from our world by a millionth of a trillionth of a trillionth of a centimeter. If that doesn't blow your mind. <laughs> but basically what modern physics is saying is that there is this unseen world that is very close to ours, but somehow just that thinly separated, and the forces in that unseen world have ramifications and help explain what happens in our world. Now, if that isn't modern physics butting up against evidence of God, I don't know what is. The second thing I wanted to talk about is Higgs, the Higgs field. Now, some of you who've done high school uh, physics uh, back in the age of the dinosaurs, like me, will remember that everything is made up of atoms. Well, it turns out it's not atoms, it's even smaller particles uh, called quarks and muons and gluons and bosons. Um, and these things have been um, measured uh, uh, experimentally in the Large Hadron Collider. Um, but for this whole theory uh, called the standard model of, of physics to be true, for all these particles to make sense mathematically, there has to exist something called a Higgs field. And let me read this out to you. The Higgs field has no force, no mass, no charge, exists everywhere in the universe all at once, and gives every other particle its mass. So this unseen power that somehow calls into existence every other particle and gives it its mass and its weight, basically makes it a reality, has to exist for all of this uh, standard model of particle physics to hold together. And not only that, but the Higgs field exists in a high energy state. If that Higgs field ever disappeared, then every particle would lose its mass, fly off in all directions at the speed of light, and everything would disintegrate. So, if that again is not some evidence of hitting up against an unseen force that we can't see, but that gives every other mass its particle and holds everything together, and if it disappeared, everything would fall apart. To me, that's, that's basically saying what we read in Hebrews 1. God's words sustaining the universe. So, modern physics and scripture gives us this very active view of God continuing to be present in holding creation together. I hope I haven't lost you or brought up bad memories of high school physics. <laughs> so, God not only sustains, he also redeems creation. So we think of redemption as a very human thing, but creation is also redeemed. Colossians 1 again tells us, God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So redemption extends not only to humans, but to all of the created world. Romans 8 says the creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. Creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. The, uh, the Passion Translation, which is a bit more poetic, says the universe is standing on tiptoe, yearning to see the unveiling of God's glorious sons and daughters. 
So in the same way that we look forward one day to our seeing our full redemption, creation is there with us on tiptoe waiting to see uh, that redemption uh, to happen. <clears throat> and we will finally see that um, at, at the wedding feast of the Lamb on the last day. Um, creation will be there joining us around the throne of God at the wedding feast. Um, Revelation 5 says, I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. So that, that image that John gives us of the final, the end of time, when we will be around the throne of God with the angels and the elders praising God, all of creation will be there with us. It won't just be a human thing. It will be the whole created world that is there with us. And the, that last revelation, that last image in Revelation, the last two chapters, is particularly key in how we see creation. So if you remember, it says, um, John says in this vision, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven uh, from God. And N.T. Wright makes the point in, in one of his books that how we see that last vision, how we see the end, actually influences how we spend our time now. And he says, for too long, we've had kind of a very Greek view of this revelation because the Greek philosophers and Plato always thought that the physical world was very base and unworthy. And it was only the spiritual world that really mattered. And N.T. Wright makes the point here that when, when it says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, the Greek word is not brand new, it's renewed. So the idea that earth is going to be wiped out and we're going to be spirited up to heaven, like, you know, beam me up, Scotty, um, is, is just not true. Um, in fact, the, the word for new here is renewed. So when it says, if you remember the other scripture, uh, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. It's not like we've been, um, you know, wiped out and there's some new avatar uh, instead of us. The creation here is not wiped out and, and uh, made again. It's God restoring what he originally intended in creation. And so if you have the old view, it doesn't make sense to be an environmentalist. Like why do anything for creation if, it's going to, if God's going to wipe it out anyway? But if we understand this final vision truly, it's saying God will renew and rebuild what he originally intended. He's not going to destroy it. Um, I mean, after all, after Noah, God said he will never again destroy what he has created. So if we truly understand this, it means a whole world of difference for how we act now. Because again, this, the, the image here, John says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. What he's saying here is that God will renew the, the environment, renew creation and renew us. And so that means that every little bit that we do for each other, for our society, and for our environment is helping to build that new Jerusalem. We don't see it fully at the moment, but every good thing that we do in accordance with God's word is building that new Jerusalem bit by bit, and we will finally see it revealed um, in, in, its, in the fullness of time in that great wedding feast uh, of the Lamb.
Does that make sense? So having said that, let's do a quick summary. We saw that creation is not only an expression of God's power, but an expression of God's love. That means that we should see creation as a gift from the Father to the Son and by extension to us. That creation has intrinsic value in and of itself because God called it good, but it also, also because it speaks to us of God's character. That when we fell, creation also fell, but in his goodness, God doesn't turn his back on it. He instead sustains it and redeems it. He continues to be active in creation, and we will see it restored along with us at the end of time. So having done all that kind of short theology course, what does it mean for our response now? Well, I think probably the first thing it means is it's a call for us to love in the same way that he loves out of um, that act that act of creation. And, and I don't know about you, but when you look at creation, what you see is a love that is uh, creative, overflowing, full of life, but perhaps if I had to choose one word, I would have to say extravagant. Um, as a scientist, you know, there are 350,000 species of flowers, and they are so different from each other and some of them even have more genes than we do. Some flowers have 100,000 genes, and we only have 32,000. So they are incredibly complex. And there is such care given to each one in how it flowers, and how it's designed, and how it functions. We see a love that is absolutely extravagant. If this was all just mutation and chance uh, occurrence, there is no need for such extravagance or for such beauty. Um, so I won't belabor that, but to love like he loves uh, will be developed further in this series. I'm going to continue to focus on creation here. I think the second way we can respond is to enjoy the gift that he has given us. So when somebody gives you a gift, the best compliment you can give them is to, you know, wear the sweater they knitted for you or to, uh, you know, see them, show them that you are using the gift that they've given you. And I think we see that in the example of Jesus. In, in his parables, in his stories, in his teaching, you know, the number of times that he refers to water or seeds or plants or trees or fish or birds, um, he is obviously very connected with the natural world. And I don't think that that's just because he lived in an agricultural society, because Paul also lived in an agricultural society, but you don't see that same kind of reflection of the natural world in how Paul writes. But you also see it in Jesus um, using nature as a place of restoration. So again, how many times do we read about Jesus slipping off uh, late at night, early in the morning, going to the desert, going to the garden, going by the water? just to pray and hear God's voice and to commune. And so I think in that we see an example for how we are to appreciate and enjoy the gift that God has uh, given us. Um, and I think the third way we can respond, and this is probably um, the um, most difficult, is to fulfill the mandate that he gave to Adam and Eve. So we, we read already that in Genesis 1, God says, let us make man in our image so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky. Now, the problem is that when we read rule in our modern English, we think absolute power. 
you know, when somebody has absolute power, they can do whatever they want with what they've been given. But the Hebrew word for rule here is radah, which actually means to have dominion. Now, dominion is not a word we commonly use, but to a Canadian, if you've uh, detected my accent, dominion is a very special word, because out of all the, the countries in the Commonwealth, Canada is the only one to have been called the dominion of Canada. And that name was given to the people of Canada to govern themselves by the crown. So it is authority to rule given to you on behalf of a higher power. And so the connotation that it has is not, you're not ruling so that you can do whatever you want. You, want. you are ruling on behalf of another and you are accountable and responsible to a higher power. That is the meaning of dominion. And so that's the kind of power that God gives us. It's one that has accountability and responsibility back to the Creator. And it, furthermore, in, in Genesis 2, we read, the Lord God took man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And again, the Hebrew word for work it is abad, which means to cultivate as work or service. So again, it's this idea of working the land in as, almost as hired hands, hired help. We're working the land on behalf of somebody else. And taking care of it is the Hebrew word shamar, which means to watch over and preserve. And shamar is, again, a very special word because almost everywhere in the Old Testament, it is associated with God. So, for example, in the, the prayer in Numbers where it says, the Lord bless you and keep you, keep you is this word shamar. It is, it is the kind of caring and watching over that God gives to us. And so this is the mandate that God gives us, to care and watch over creation with the same care and watching over that he has for us, which is quite a, um, a big responsibility, uh, that mandate. So if we're going to live up to that, what should our response be? And... What I'm hoping is that in these few minutes, you've been able to see the creation story afresh. And my hope is that really you'll, you'll sit with that and let the Holy Spirit speak to you about what does God want your role to be in looking after his creation. But these are just a few ideas to kind of get, get your thoughts rolling, get the ball rolling. And uh, I've broken it up into maybe thinking how we give our time and how we give our money. So in giving our time, perhaps it means joining a, a land care group in your neighborhood. Maybe it means taking the kids and volunteering for Earth Day or Clean Up Day or um, the initiative that uh, Newvine has come up with next Sunday. Uh, let's do that as a collective expression of caring for God's creation. In how we give our money, we can look at how we spend, but also who we give to. So, you know, to what extent have we bought into the consumer mentality? Maybe it means buying your next big item of furniture or your next bit of clothing as secondhand. Maybe it means donating on, on, on Facebook Marketplace, what you have stopped needing to use so that somebody else can use it. Maybe it means using consciously less plastic 
one of the uh, statistics I came across in doing this research was that we dump uh, 8 million tons of plastic into the oceans every year. And just to imagine what that looks like, imagine uh, 15 garbage bags full of plastic on every meter of shoreline around the world. That's not a pretty picture, is it? Um, maybe it means putting some solar panels up on our roof. Maybe it means the next time you pay your energy bill, your electricity bill, you choose one of the green energy um, options. You know, maybe your next car is a hybrid car. I'd love to have a Tesla, but they're just too expensive. Um, maybe the next time you're at the grocery store, it means buying free-range eggs or, uh, you know, milk that's, that, gives you, that gives more money back to the dairy farmers. Maybe it buy, means buying organic meat or shopping at the farmer's markets. Um, it, it may mean who we give to. Um, so, you know, it may mean that you start thinking about the World Wildlife uh, Fund or the Australian Conservancy Foundation or Bush Heritage, organizations that uh, work to preserve the land. Or, you know, we're, we give to Compassion. Often Compassion has projects that are about rehabilitating the land so the community can thrive or buying animals so that people can have sustainable farming. Often the health of the environment is linked to the health of the people that live in there. So these are just some ideas to get you going. But what I'm really hoping is that during these few minutes, we've been able to see creation with fresh eyes, see some of the deep and profound truths that God reveals to us in his word about his love and creating out of love. And um, I just want you to encourage you to just sit with that and see what the Holy Spirit prompts you to do uh, in taking care of, uh, of God's uh, creation. And so I invite the, um, the uh, worship team to come up. And just as they're playing this next song, let, let these truths sit with you and see what the Holy Spirit um, says to you.